Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So today we're going to talk about a complicated relationship. We're going to talk about a volatile relationship. So for those of you that don't know, this year for our our church is what we're calling the Year of the Bible, and so we are going book by book through the Bible this year, every weekend, in a chronological way. We're trying to learn the bigger story of the Bible. And today we are kind of in a new phase, a new part in the history of the world, uh, in the history of the nation of Israel, and in a section of the Bible. We're in the, really, the era of the kings. So we're starting a series for the next five weeks called Dynasty. What we're going to do is we're going to look, mainly we're going to focus on the first three kings of Israel, um, Saul, David, and Solomon, and look at their lives, their stories, their interaction with each other, and their writings, and see what we can learn about uh, God, what we can learn about relationships, we can learn about life, and see how they tried to navigate that and figure those things out, and maybe learn from them about, and, and their writings about how we can best do that. So as we kick this new series off on the kings, uh, we're going to ask a very key question that we all have to ask ourselves. And it's a question that David, we're going to talk about David today, how he had to ask this question and how he had to answer this question. So the question is this, what do you do when you've been wronged? That's the question we're going to ask today. What do you do when you've been wronged? You've been wronged by somebody before? Ever been hurt by somebody before? They said nasty words, you know, they, they just tore you to shreds, maybe they lied about you, they spread rumors about you, they lied to you, you know, you, you thought you could trust this person and they twisted the knife in your back, you were Julius Caesar for a second there, you know, a tu brute, you were having one of those moments in your life. Or you think, you know, how did this relationship go sideways? What, what happened here? And then you realize, oh, wow, I was, that was a toxic relationship all along. I didn't see it, but it was not healthy. It was not good. We've all been wronged. And if you haven't, buckle up. It will happen. <laughs> so, at some point in your life, people will fail you. People will hurt you. You will be wronged. So we have to ask this question, what do you do when you've been wronged? And we're going to ask this question through the lens. We're going to look at the first two kings of Israel and their relationship. So the first king of Israel is Saul, and then the second is David. We're going to look at their relationship. And they have sort of a longer history than we might even realize. Uh, And then their relationship starts out good, it goes really good, and then it goes south really fast. And so David has to ask himself, what am I going to do when I've been wronged? So to set this up, let's sort of talk about the relationship for just a second, and then we'll get into how it went wrong and what David then had to do. So Saul is the first king of Israel. We'll talk about him more in a couple of weeks, but he was chosen by the people, chosen apprehensively by God, to be honest, to be the first king of Israel. And so he does great for a while. Things are going smooth. Things are going great. But then he makes too many mistakes. 
He disobeys God one too many times in really big, huge ways. We'll talk about that again in a couple weeks. But needless to say, God judges him for his disobedience. And he says, your judgment is, your line of your dynasty is over. So then he has to find his replacement. So as we'll talk about, Jonathan is Saul's son. He should be the second king of Israel. It should go Saul, Jonathan, Jonathan's son, Jonathan's son's son, and on and on and on. But because Saul disobeyed, God cut him off. So he has to find a replacement. So he sends Samuel, the the prophet, out to find and anoint and choose the next king of Israel. He goes far and wide throughout the country, house to house, place to place, town to town, until he goes to this little town in this little house of this little family. And there's a bunch of brothers here, and he looks at all the brothers. He lines them up and inspects them. Who's the next king? Are you the next king? Well, you're tall and strong and rough looking. Yeah, you could do it, but no, it's not him. On down the line until he gets to the little kid brother of the family named David. David's a teenage boy. He's, he watches his father's sheep out in the fields, so he's smelly and gross. He gets picked on. He's the puny kid. Nobody thinks he's going to amount to anything, but Samuel, is, he, he says, that's the one. God says he's the one to lead the people to be the next king. So David's anointed as the next king of Israel. Meanwhile, back in the palace, Saul is literally going insane. He literally has spirits that are tormenting him. He is losing his mind. I'm not being figurative when I say that. He is literally going insane. He is not stable. And so he will have these fits of rage, and he will do all these things. And so the people around him are like, what are we going to do to calm this guy down? What are we going to do to get him under control? And so one person has the idea, music's good for the soul. Music is soothing. Maybe we should hire a musician to come in and maybe play and see if it'll kind of calm him down. So guess who they end up hiring to be the musician for Saul? David. This little shepherd boy who plays his harp and sings to the sheep in the field is now hired to be the personal musician for crazy King Saul. And he has some sort of supernatural effect on him. When he plays his harp and sings his songs, Saul just is like a baby. He just immediately, blood pressure goes down, everything evens out, and he is just like, this is great. So they had this relationship already early on. Soon after, the Philistines, who are kind of the number numero uno uh, opposition to Israel at this time, they are in a standoff with the Israelite army, and they are at either side of this valley, kind of in a standoff. And so as they're there, they're not really doing anything, but every day, the champion warrior of the Philistines named Goliath would come out, and he would taunt the Israelite army, and he would challenge them. He says, I want one of your men to fight me one-on-one to the death. And he's so confident in his skills as a trained killer, he says, I'm going to raise the stakes. If I win, you are our slaves. If I lose, which isn't going to happen, then we'll be your slaves. He is so confident in his ability to do this, to conquer any champion that Israel might have, that he has made this declaration. And no one is brave enough, strong enough, courageous enough to answer that call. But one day, young David, when he's not playing in the palace, he's coming from home from his father to check out on his brothers who are on the front line. So David's not even old enough to be in the army yet, okay? He's there, shows up to say, hey, dudes, what's up? And he watches Goliath come out and issue this challenge. And so we know, you probably know the story. David says, I'll do it. Like nobody else is going to answer. How long has he been doing it? How many weeks has he been out here every day taunting us, taunting our God, right? And so he he says, I'll do it. Now, Saul, again, having this relationship with David, tries to help him out. He says, you're going to get yourself killed. Don't do it. David's like, I'm going to do it. So Saul says, okay, if you're going to go get yourself killed, at least let it be, you know, interesting. He tries to give him his armor. 
But Saul's a grown man, large man. David's a small, scrawny teenager. It doesn't fit. The sword, he's like, I, I'm going to get myself really hurt really fast if I try to do this. He says, no, I've got a slingshot. I'm out there, you know, knocking, out, knocking cans on the fence posts all the time, and I'm, really, I'm a good shot. I'm going to use what I can use. I'm going to use what I know. So David goes out there, puts the stone in the slingshot with Goliath out there, straight in the forehead, and he's dead. Well, he's not dead because then David takes his Goliath's sword and cuts his head off. Now he's dead. That's a great sermon right there, but I won't, God won't go there. Uh, I don't have time for that today. He cuts, he cuts the head off. He makes sure Goliath is dead. So now David is a national hero. Now he's a bit of a legend. He's the same scrawny 15-year-old shepherd boy who plays the harp and sings beautifully, but now he is somebody. So now Saul and his relationships kind of deepen to a degree here. So that's 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 18 is where we're going to pick up their relationship and look at what happens here. We're going to read a, a, quite a bit here at the beginning to set the stage for seeing their relationship deteriorate to get David in a, diff in a difficult situation. So here it is, 1 Samuel chapter 18. This is just after he's killed Goliath. After David had finished talking with Saul, they have kind of a debriefing moment there, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. So now he's hired living in the palace full time. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. Whatever, this is a key verse, verse 5. Listen to this. We'll come back to this in a second. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. Spoiler alert, he was right. <laughs> so from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing his harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall, but David escaped him twice. So in a short period of time, David goes from favorite of the king to target of the king, like that. Why? Why? How? How? This seems like everything's going great here. What, what caused Saul to, to do this, to react like this toward David? There's a couple of reasons that we'll talk about very briefly, and then we'll get into David's response to this. The first thing, the first mistake that Saul made is he was acting out of jealousy and fear. And, and really, jealousy is rooted in fear, isn't it? I'm afraid if I don't have what they have, I won't feel fulfilled. I'm afraid if I don't have their lifestyle, I won't feel really happy and content. So because I don't have what they have, and I think I need what they have, and I want what they have, I'm jealous that they have it and I don't. Jealousy is rooted in fear. Saul reacted out of these emotions. But there is that deeper part we already talked about. He also re reacted out of paranoia. 
He, he is going literally insane. He is losing his mind. He is mentally unstable. So he's seeing things there that aren't really there. He's feeling things that aren't really what they seem to be. He is fooling himself. He saw David as an overt threat to him. And he wasn't an overt threat. He was a covert threat in the grand scheme of things. But Saul saw him as a bigger threat than he was. And this tricking of, of the mind can happen to any of us. Acting out of fear or jealousy or even paranoia can happen. I think it's more common than we might even realize that it is. So the first century Roman philosopher Seneca said it this way. He said, there are more things likely to frighten us than there are to crush us. We suffer more often in imagination than in reality. That's what Saul was facing. He was suffering in imagination more than he was suffering in reality. He saw things that weren't there. And here's the ironic part. This is why I focused on verse 5 of, the, of what we just read. David was an enemy of Saul's own making. First of all, his paranoia made him what he wasn't. But again, verse 5, whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made David a bigger threat. He really actually built up his cred. He built up his legend. Because not only during this time period does Saul try to spear David to death more than once, we'll talk about that in a minute, but then after he spears him to death, he decides, okay, I don't want to kill him. I don't want to have that blood on my hands. I don't want to deal with that. So instead what he does is he would put David in an impossible battle situation, hoping that David would die in battle. Now I'm done. Now I'm rid of him. Now he's out of the way. Now I can be at peace. Now, if you know anything about the story of David, we'll talk about it in a couple weeks. David uses the same exact tactic to one of his friends years later. It's funny how that, how that works. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today, too, the idea behind that. So he, he throws the spears at him, tries to kill him, tries to put him in battle situations. But the problem is David and his men are so good, so skilled, that they win these impossible battles. They're outnumbered, outmanned, outgunned, and they still win. So guess what? David killed his 10,000s because Saul put him in the position to do so. He set himself up for failure by putting David in an impossible situation that he was able to overcome. So in the end, it's Saul's own fault that David's clout was raised. It's his fault that he did this. David was an enemy of Saul's own making. And so Saul attempted to spear David multiple times, try to take his life. And maybe you've never had anyone throw a spear at you, right? But you've had verbal spears thrown at you, certainly. You've had emotional spears thrown at you, certainly. You've been in those situations with those people. You're like, this is not good. This is not healthy. This is not right. This is unjust. I've been wrong. You've been where David is on some level. So what we'll look at here for the rest of our time are really three steps that David makes, three things that David does when he's been wrong, three decisions that he makes to help him overcome this issue of being wrong in a deep way. We will also see the parallels to the life of Jesus in answering the same question. What do you do when you've been wrong? Both David and Jesus will show us three things that we can and I believe we should do when we've been wrong. Here's the first thing that David does. When, when you've been wrong, the first thing that we should do is to show restraint. Restraint. So think about David, this first instance Maybe even the second instance when he, the spear, tshoom, and he looks over there, looks right behind him at the wall and sees a spear that should have done him in, should have pinned him to the wall, should have killed him, ended his life. How easy would it have been for David to back, get that spear out, 
and throw it right back. So easy. All you got to do is pick it out of the wall and chuck it. Step one, pick it out of the wall. Step two, chuck it. Done, right? So easy. How enticing is that for David to do that? It's very enticing. We know he had the ability to do that, right? I mean, he killed Goliath with a slingshot. He's, he's, he even said before that, when I was in the field as a teenager, preteen, he would barehanded with a club kill lions and bears who were trying to attack his father's sheep. He can take care of himself. He's killed tens, maybe not really ten. he's killed multitudes of men on the field of battle. He knows how to use a weapon. He knows how to aim better than Saul probably could aim. So it would be, he, he has the ability to take that thing out and just throw it right back. He has the justification to throw it back at Saul. I mean, he's trying to, again, take his life for no reason, multiple death attempts. So he was like, I got to defend my life here. I, I, I don't want to end up plastered to the wall. I want to maybe send a message. Maybe I will aim just a little off just to say, hey, watch it. He has justification to do that and being wronged. And he also, I think there's an expectation for him to respond and retaliate in that way as well. I can just imagine the people around, the servants that are around watching, you know, Saul go, whoom, and then they're waiting for David to move. They're getting their popcorn. Like, oh boy, this is going to be good. What is this warrior going to do? How is he going to respond? I'm ready for the show. So there's an expectation that he's going to retaliate, which makes, I think, David's restraint all that much more impressive. It makes his restraint that much more powerful. And probably to Saul, it makes his restraint that much more frustrating. There probably is a little bit of thing, a little bit of part of Saul that's like, just come at me, bro. Let's do this. Like, I don't really have a reason to kill you. Give me one, and we're going to do it, right? So it's, just, it's so impressive that he shows this kind of restraint in this type of moment, even with the ability, justification, and expectation to respond and retaliate. Instead, he shows restraint. And I think what we see here is the danger of not showing restraint is simply this. The danger of not showing restraint when we've been wronged is we become what we are avoiding. We turn into the spear thrower that we are dodging when we retaliate, when we don't show restraint. And uh, there, there's an example of this. It just happened. Not, okay, not, I'm not going to show anybody throwing a spear at somebody, okay? But I, do have, I think there's a video at the very bottom um, of this. I'm going to show you in just a second, but I'm going to set it up for you. So there was a college basketball game. Maybe you saw this last Sunday. Michigan and Wisconsin, and the, the game is nearly over. There's a few seconds left. Michigan is getting blown out by double digits, right? But they're also deciding we're going to still do full court press defense the last 20 seconds of the game on these non-starters that are winning. And so the coach trying to help his team out that are kind of frazzled, and they don't, he calls a timeout really late in the second half. Well, the Michigan coach is not happy about that. It's unsportsmanlike. The game's over. Why'd you call a timeout? And my thought is, why are you doing full court press? You're, not gonna, you're down by 14. You're not going to win the game. What are you, why are you acting, right? So we already see a little bit of this here. And he is so angry, so frustrated, so mad that well, I'm going to show you this clip of what happens at the very end of the game. Is, I think it's at the very bottom. Is there one? Darn it. Okay. Let me just reenact. Anybody want to come up here and be the other Wisconsin coach? <laughs> if, you, if you don't, you know why. So they go in their handshake lines, the team's you know, handshake, and they start to get into a scuffle. The coach 
of the losing team, the Michigan coach who has lost, he's embarrassed, he swipes at one of the other coaches in the middle of this scrum. And that causes the players now to get involved. And you can even see on, on, the, on the video that his, the players are holding the coach back. Like that sh- shouldn't it be the other way around? These 19-year-old young men are holding their coach back from fighting another coach because he's been wounded by this timeout that was called late in the game. What kind of message is that sending to these young men? He's supposed to lead and train and help. It doesn't send a very good message at all. And what it shows is the danger of not showing restraint. You become what you're trying to avoid. Even after the game, he's still upset about the timeout. It's unsportsmanlike. It's not right. You shouldn't behave that way. And yet he's the one trying to swipe at another adult in the middle of all these young adults. That's, that's the problem when we don't show restraint is we become what we are dodging. And we see this also in the life of Jesus. So it's really the night when he is arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. So this, this account that I'm going to talk about is in all four of the gospel accounts. It's very rare for that to happen. This is one of those things that's in there. And every eyewitness has their own point of view, obviously. So I'm going to piece them together to give you kind of a 360-degree view of this moment where Jesus shows restraint. So in the garden, these, this uh, group is coming to arrest Jesus. These Jewish officials are coming to arrest him. And Peter, his right-hand man, is not going to have any of it. He, gets, he finds a sword, and he just swipes, kind of like the coach of Michigan swiping, right? But he's got a sword in his hand. He cuts off the ear of one of the guards that are there to arrest Jesus. He retaliates. He doesn't show restraint, but Jesus does. Because he says, whoa, whoa, Peter, 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 break it up. He, Jesus is breaking up the fight here. And he says, Peter, those that live by the sword will also die by the sword. And then, in another gospel account, he says, and aren't I, I'm supposed to drink this cup of suffering. There, this is part of the plan. This is how it's supposed to go down. Nobody, I don't want it to go down this way, but I know it has to. Aren't I, aren't, aren't I supposed to drink this cup of suffering? And so then what he does is even more amazing after that. He, in this moment where he's about to be illegally arrested to go on trial for his life for crimes he did not commit, picks up the severed ear off the ground and heals the person arresting him. Heals the ear, puts it back in place supernaturally. He shows restraint. It's power power in that. So the question that we have to consider is this. When you've been wronged, will you hurl a spear or will you heal an ear? That's the distinction to make. Those are the options that lay before you. When you've been wronged, will you hurl a spear or will you heal an ear? There's power in restraint. Even and not, Again, let me say two things quickly. I'm not saying any of this is easy to do, and I'm not saying that I do this very well. Please don't misunderstand what is happening right now. I'm talking to me as much as I'm talking to anybody else. Just imagine me sitting right next to you talking. Because I've been dealing with this like for a couple of weeks now, trying to work through this. I'm like, man, this is like, not, I'm not doing too great on this sometimes, you know? So we're all in the same boat together, okay? So I just want to put that out. I should have said that at the beginning, but it's better late than never. So here we go. So show restraint. That's the first thing we should do when we've been wronged. Here's the second thing that may seem weird, but we'll talk about why and how we do that very specifically and practically. So the second thing that David does when he's been wrong is he runs. He runs. So Saul throws the spears at David, tries to set him up to die, throws more spears at him. He's out to get him. So David flees for his life. He goes from town to town, place to place, meets different people. He hides in the desert. He hides in caves. And Saul, for years, chases after him. His number one goal is to kill this guy for whatever reason. He wants him dead. 
Now, David did not run because he was scared. He ran because he was smart. And that seems obvious, like, well, no, duh. If someone's going to try to chase me, I'm going to run away from them. That's very smart. But it's even on a deeper level than that. Because David, remember, has been anointed as the next king of Israel. And he knows, well, I'm not going to be a very good king if I'm dead. If this is really God's will, God's plan, I'm his anointed one, I'm next in line, I'm not going to be very good if I'm dead. So he runs because he is smart. And Jesus had similar moments as well. In his life, he had powerful people out to get him. He had powerful forces out to destroy him all the time. But there's one time in particular in John chapter 8 where Jesus is having a a kind of a long dialogue with a, a crowd in the middle of the street, basically. And as far as we know, it's just regular people in a regular town having a regular conversation. It's not like these are high-ranking officials and Pharisees. It's just, he just says, the crowd, the crowd, the crowd, the people, okay? And in this conversation, he's trying to explain who he really is and what he came to do and why that's so important. But in doing so, he makes some pretty lofty claims about himself. And the conversation doesn't go very well. The people aren't wanting to hear what he's trying to say. They're not believing what he's saying and claiming about himself. And so here's how that conversation with this crowd ends in John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. He's claiming to be God. Verse 59, at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. So Jesus does the same thing that David did. He ran, and he did it for the same reason, not because he was scared, but because he was smart. Because Jesus, if David knew he's king, and I got to be alive to do that, Jesus knows this. He knows I am destined to die, but it's not in some random alley with a couple of thugs with rocks, because that's not going to make the news. That's not going to get anyone's attention. That's not going to capture the, the world's attention here. He knew it was the wrong time and the wrong place. He wasn't afraid to die because later on we know when it was the right time to die, when the scene was set and it was, everything is fulfilled, everything's going according to plan, he gave himself up. He, like a lamb to the slaughter, he was led. So he wasn't running from the danger or from, because he was scared, but because he was smart. He knew that wasn't the right time or the right place. When you've been wronged, you have to run. But what does that mean for us that aren't having stones thrown at us and aren't having spears hurled at us? What does that mean? So just for a few minutes here, let me get very practical and maybe even overly specific on a few things, okay? Because I think the more that we can break this down into our life, the more we can know what this means and why it is effective, okay? So what does it mean for us to run when we've been wronged? And here's the big idea, and we'll break it down in three different ways for just a minute. So here's what I think about running when we've been wronged. I believe it can be healthy and good to put distance in certain relationships when necessary if possible, and for as long a time as we need. Okay, let me say that again. I believe it can be healthy and good to put distance in certain relationships when necessary, if possible, and for at least a period of time. Okay, so because if if people are throwing spears, you need space in that relationship. Okay, let me give you three very practical ways to do this. Now, you can disagree with these. You can say, That's, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't apply. That's fine. Uh, or you can even add your own and think, why didn't he say that? I've only got so much time and so much brain power to do this. So you can add your own what applies to you. But here are three things. The first one is very specific. It may not apply to you, but if it does, you'll know. Okay, 
The first thing, when you're trying to create this distance in this relationship, again, very specific, do not follow them on social media. I know you're like, okay, I'm out, eh, I'm not on social media. Good for you. I'm like, that's great. You should still not ever do that, right? But if you are, it's not just the physical distance that we're after. It's the emotional, relational distance that we need. So if I'm still checking in on what they're doing online, I'm not giving the space to myself and them that I'm trying to get. If I'm still letting them peer into what I'm doing and where, where I'm checking in and what's going on, I'm not actually giving any space at all in the area that I need to, relationally, emotionally, personally. So we don't want to give continued access because it's going to derail the whole operation. So that, I know that's very specific, but I think that's an important one um, to kind of limit even the social media distance, the non-physical distance as often as we can. Here's, here's the second one, though. When we're creating that distance in that relationship, it's important, and this may sound harsh, but hear me out. My encouragement is don't initiate with this person, at least for a while. Okay, Here, here's what I mean by that. And we're not doing it out of hate or spite. I'm going to cut in here. Can I just be vulnerable for a second? I tend to do this, okay? I mean, I tend to not do this. What I will do, uh, and I'm trying to get better at this, guys. I'm being really real for a second. If I've been wrong, my initial reaction is to act like that person doesn't exist. Right, that's where I go. I go deep and dark really fast. I'm like, okay, dead to me. If we're in the same room, I will not even acknowledge that you are even on the planet. And you're right there. Like, I've, I've, that's just where I'm at, guys. So I'm telling you, this is for me as much as I'm not saying that to look at me. I'm saying, please don't look at me <laughs> and do, what I, do as I say, not as I do is what I'm, what I'm saying here. No. But the distance is supposed to help us heal, Right? And so it's going to be short-term pain to kind of distance ourselves from them. And, we, and if you're, the softer heart you have, the more you're going to want to go in too soon, back into that, back into the lion's den, back into the pit of fire, you know, and you're going to get burned. You're going to get bitten. It's going to be bad. And so we have to kind of resist that to give it time to heal. Because maybe if you give it long enough, that person's going to notice the distance that's there. They're going to feel that, and they're going to be like, I wonder what's happened. And then maybe if they really examine themselves, maybe they'll see, oh, wow, yeah, I was a jerk to them. Now I see why they need, oh, man, I, I have been really awful to them. Or that thing that I did weeks ago or months ago, I can see why they need some space. Maybe that, the distance will be good for you and for them. And depending upon your relationship, this is going to look different. So I'm not saying that you can just ignore your spouse for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Okay, don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying be mean to your boss and get yourself fired to show. That's going to show them. Yeah, just going to save their bottom dollar, you know, uh, your salary, that sort of thing. But so here's what I would encourage, especially the closer and the closer the relationship is, the more awkward this is going to be. Just is. The more painful this will be the more you'll probably want to initiate too fast and it's not gonna, nothing's gonna change, it's gonna get worse and it's just gonna spiral out of control. The closer it is, the harder it's gonna be. Now, one thing I haven't mentioned yet about David and Saul is that not only at the beginning was David like a son to Saul, but in the middle of all the spear throwing, for some reason, David marries one of Saul's daughters. He becomes Saul's son-in-law. He becomes Saul's family. So then when he has to run from his father-in-law and leave his wife there alone and his best friend, the king's son, there alone, and he's, it's awkward, it's hard, it's personal, it hurts. So yes, the closer it is, the more it's going to hurt and be awkward. And also, but I think with that, though, the more honest we can be about the space that we're taking, 
I'm not saying you have to ghost everybody that hurts you like I tend to do. You can maybe be honest with them and say, hey, listen, this is not working. Like how, how you speak to me, how you treat me, this, this is not healthy. And so for the sake of me and our relationship, I'm going to have to pull back a little bit. It's let them know, right? That's going to help that self-reflection maybe to start earlier for them, possibly. Hopefully it does. So maybe we want to be up front about this decision that we're making to create distance in this relationship. So, uh, and then here's the last thing I'll mention. So again, uh, don't follow on social media for this time of separation. Don't, I guess, initiate too quickly. And that this is, and here's the other thing. During that time of space and distance and separation, don't gossip about that person or that relationship. Here's what I mean. If they, let's say you have mutual friends with this person that you're distancing from, and you happen to meet with them or bump into them or have lunch with them, that's going to come up in the conversation. Hey, what happened with you and so-and-so? Or, man, I've been hearing some things. It's weird. You know, here's what I would say. Depending upon the person that's talking in the setting, I would just be as businesslike as possible. We don't need to go airing in our dirty laundry, especially if, it's, if it is your spouse that you're having issues with and you're with your guy friends or girlfriends. This is not a, a rag-on-my-spouse session. Okay, We want to avoid that at all costs. So we also don't want to mouth off to the wrong person who's then going to go back to that person. You're never going to believe what they said about you. Did you know that they really felt that way? They hate you, right? We don't want, that, we don't want anything to get, you know, lost in translation. So the less gory, nasty, evil details that we can give in the right settings, the better for the long term. We also don't want to speak in anger to someone and make things even worse, make that healing process even longer and more difficult than it needs to be. Here's another part of this. Sometimes, and I've, I do this, I've done this before too, sometimes we are tempted to set the record straight, get our side of the story out there to as many people as possible as fast as we can. Because man, if I don't tell them my side of what happened, they're going to hear it from them, and then what are they going to think about me? Oh man, I've got to really get, tell everybody all the stuff that I can so they think better of me, right? So we want to resist that urge as much as we can to defend ourselves and prove ourselves, And here's why. If other people outside of this relationship really know me, then they know me. So if they hear something from someone else that doesn't sound quite right, they're hopefully, if they really know me, they're going to think, hmm, that does not sound like them. I know a different version of them than that. Or man, something really bad must have happened. Maybe I should reach out to them and see if they're okay. If they know me, they know me. I have to be secure in that. And if they don't know me, then why am I so concerned about what they think about me anyway? Right? Why? And again, I, I'm a people pleaser. I like people to like me. It makes my life so much better and easier if people like me, right? I'm sure you can relate to that. So yes, part of me somewhere in there does care about even what people that will never meet me think about me. But that's really not a healthy trait maybe to always have to this deep degree. And so we have to resist that urge to get the story out there, front page news, let me tell you my side, my view, my point of view. It's like, no, 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 we want to avoid that as often as possible. David had to deal with that too. Saul was spreading false news about David as he's chasing him around the country as a crazy person. And so David had to just keep his head down and keep quiet and work through the healing process in this distant relationship. I will say this, and we'll move on. It is okay to talk to someone. I'm not saying don't have an outlet. I'm saying choose them wisely. Trust them. 
Maybe, it's, maybe it is a pastor. Maybe it is a counselor or a therapist. That's great. Maybe it is a good friend who's really not a mutual friend that they're not going to go tell or they're not going to have this idea about this other person already built up or you're not trying to build your team against them now, right? You can find those people. But we have to be very careful. And as we do share with the right people in the right setting, let's make sure of this. Let's make sure that what we share is focused more on us than on the other person that's wronged us. Again, the goal of distance in this relationship is to heal, ultimately, not only ourselves, but maybe even that relationship. Maybe if I work on me and hopefully they're working on them, maybe we can reconcile. That's the idea. That's the hope. We can reconcile our differences and come together and be friends again or be more loving spouses than ever before or better workers or a better boss than, or whatever the situation or relationship is. The goal is to heal. And so if I can focus more on my end and what I've done, what I'm doing, that will help us to heal and to grow in that time of distance. There's a second aspect quickly of this second run part that I want to focus on, and that's the spiritual aspect of it. We talked about the, the physical, relational, the practical. Let's talk about the spiritual aspect of this for a second, too. Because it, for Jesus especially, it wasn't just in dangerous moments that he ran off by himself. He made a regular practice of getting away. He made a regular practice of running off by himself to focus on God. We see this in Luke chapter 5, verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed often. So we don't run because we're scared, but because we're smart. We don't run to hide. We run to retreat, to replenish our spirit, to recharge our batteries, to refocus our thinking. Because eventually, whether it's from this person again and again and again or somebody else, we will be wronged again. So if I can take regular time of devotion with God, if I can get away with him, even if it's just for a few minutes a day to make this practice a, a daily devotional time, a real thing, we will see the value of that. We will strengthen our relationship with God to then be ready for when more spears are coming right, right by my ear, when more things are being said, more lies are being told, more wrong is being done. We can withstand that more and more, better and better as we make this habit of running. We don't want to waste this opportunity. We don't even want to waste the pain that we're in. We want to learn from it, grow from it, and find out how to be strengthened by it. That's what David did. So he's not just running and hiding from cave to cave and place to place, but actually he's writing a lot of psalms during this time of running. Most of the psalms in the 50s, you'll see in the, if you look at the, above the actual text of the psalm, it'll say, written by David when running from Saul, written by David and hiding you know, in the cave from Saul. It'll say, so a lot of the, the 50s, and even, I think, Psalm 60 is kind of in this time period. So he's using his pain. He's, he's working things out. He's talking things out. He's praying things out. He's singing things out. He's running, but he's not wasting his time in running. There's, pur there's purpose to it. And I believe we can experience the same thing as we distance ourselves in certain relationships at certain times. Here's the last thing that I'll mention just briefly as we close. And this is maybe the hardest one of all of them. I won't spend as much time on it, but it might be the hardest one. When you've been wronged, we must resist. You would say, resist what, Stephen? I'm glad you asked. When you've been wrong, you must resist bitterness and revenge. Bitterness and revenge. There's a danger to the distance that we've just talked about. There's one danger, and that is if it has the opposite effect of what we intend. Because you can run and you can try to heal, but you can also run and make your list of grievances longer. I remember when they did that back in 1989. 
It's like, it's 2022. Like, seriously. I know, but I'm, I'm thinking and I'm praying. I'm getting stuff out. And I remember everything they ever said to me, everything they ever did to me, and I'm not happy. And you can get more angry than you were before. So we have to be careful when we run that we also resist bitterness, anger, resentment, revenge. Man, after I get healed up, I'm going to show them. Well, then you're not healed up yet, so keep the healing thing going. Don't, don't, that's hope. don't initiate yet. You're not ready, you know. We can make it worse than ever. You know, I'm, I'm going to make them pay. They're going to feel what I felt. Like, wow, like we went, that went bad fast, you know. And David has a golden opportunity to exact revenge on Saul. Here's how that happens. So David's been running for a number of months or years now. He's kind of collected a small little band of merry men, if you will, that are following him around, and they're, they're his guys. They're his troop, and they're like, man, we're with you. We believe you. We believe in you. We know that God's blessed you and anointed you as the king, so we're, we're behind you, bro. And so they're kind of staying together, defending David, and they are hiding in, a ca- in the back of a cave because they know that Saul is nearby. So Saul and his people looking for David, hunting him down. They stop, and he's got to take a bathroom break. Even kings have to go to the bathroom, guys, okay? It just, it just happens. Wouldn't you know it, he goes into a cave, Saul does, to relieve himself. He happens to be in the exact same cave where David and his men are hiding. What an opportunity. Saul's doing his thing here. <laughs> he's, he's vulnerable, right? He, he can't just get up and leave. I mean, he could, but it wouldn't be good. So David has this moment here. He can exact revenge. He can end this thing once and for all. He can take matters into his own hands. So here's what happens. This is 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 4. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. The problem with bitterness and revenge is it always leads to regret and loss. Always. Because when the blood pressure, when you've acted in revenge, when you've responded in revenge, and you're bitter, and it all comes out in whatever form it does, when the blood pressure lowers, when your mind fog clears, when the noise dies down, you're always left asking, what did I just do? Always. Unless you're a psychopath. (laughs) Always. In the moment, it felt right. In the moment, it felt good. In the moment, they deserve this. I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to show them. But then, again, when it dies down, you're left with just you and your thoughts. You are left with nothing but regret every time. It feels right, but it's not. And here's what I mean by that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, the New Testament tells us how to avoid this, this debacle. It says this, Look after each other so that none of you fall, fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Again, what he says here, bitterness feels right in the moment, but it's actually poison. And then he says, it's trouble for you. It's going to mess you up. It's going to keep you back. It's going to hinder you from all that God wants you to do and has for you to do. Bitterness will keep you. It's a prison. But it also corrupts many. So there's a ripple effect to bitterness. We'll talk about in a couple of weeks the collateral damage of our disobedience and our sin. There are people that we don't intend to hurt that we hurt. 
when we don't do what's right. And it's the same thing with this. So he says here, we have to look after each other, have each other's backs in this, encourage one another, keep, keep us on the right track, hold each other accountable. It's a hard thing to do on both ends of that, but it's imperative that we resist these urges of bitterness and revenge. A great example of this is from the Civil War time. Abraham Lincoln's president, his secretary of war is named Edwin Stanton, and he is complaining to President Lincoln about this army and the general, this general in the army. He's got so many issues with, so many problems with, and he's just like telling him all about it. And so Lincoln tells him, write him a letter. Let him know how you feel. Let him know what your grievances are. Air it all out there. So he furiously, he writes this, I don't know how many pages long it was, but he's letting him know how he feels and what he did and how, what he thinks about it. And then Lincoln says, let me read the letter. So Lincoln takes the letter and reads it. He's like, oh, okay, that's good. Oh, okay, that's good. And now he hands it back and says, burn the letter. Lincoln says, I do this all the time. I have issues with people. I have run-ins with people, even his own cabinet members, right? They were enemies at one point. And he says, I'll write a letter, and I'll tell him what I think of him, and I'll say, you so-and-so, you blankety-blank, and then I'll burn it. And after I've had time to cool down, now I feel better, I'll write the real letter that I'm actually going to send them. And it's a totally different letter than the first one I wrote. He says, burn the letter and now write the real one. So we have to be that way. We have to resist the urge. That nasty email that you want to send is not worth it. That passive-aggressive Facebook post, I'm going to show them, is not worth it. It makes you look small. That cutting comment, oh, and I'll tell you, I'm good at this too, especially with Kim, right? I'm getting better. I don't do it as often because I'm smart. Uh, but if you know your spouse, you know what little thing to say that will just, mm, you know what those things are. You know what their insecurities are. You know what they're hanging on. You know what they struggle with. It's like, I just say that one little thing. I don't even have to raise my voice. Mm, you just know that cutting, it's just not worth it because then you feel like trash afterward. Shouting in anger to get your point across, not worth it. Getting back at that person, let them feel the pain that you felt is not worth it. So even when we've been wrong, we have to resist bitterness and revenge. Last verse I'll mention them, and then we'll really be done for real, okay? For real this time. Some years later, Saul dies in battle. So this whole thing is over now. Years and years and years of David running for his life, running for his life. It's over. So what does David do? What's his response? Yes! Finally, this guy's dead. And I didn't have to be the one to kill him. He got what was coming to him. Now he knows how it feels to be in. Now he knows what pain is like. Well, how does he, re- let's look. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. When David heard this news, David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. They mourned and wept and fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan, for the Lord's army and the nation of Israel, because they had died by the sword that day. Skip down to verse 17. Then David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan, and he commanded that it be taught to the people of Judah. It is known as the Song of the Bow and is recorded in the book of Jashar. And then here's a part of that song, 2 Samuel 1, 23 and 24. David writes this, How beloved and gracious were Saul and Jonathan. Can you imagine him writing that about a guy he's been running from for years? They were together in life and in death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. O women of Israel, weep for Saul, for he dressed you in luxurious scarlet clothing and garments decorated with gold. Even after Saul did all of this to David, David still mourned his death. 
Even through the pain, he acted honorably. Even through the heartache, he exhibited love and compassion. And it reminds me of Jesus on the cross. What does he say to the people who are falsely accusing him of crimes he didn't commit? What does he say about the Romans who are executing an innocent man? What is he saying about the leadership that won't stand up and do the right thing and free him? What is he saying to the soldiers who nail his hands and feet to a cross and watch him suffocate to death while his lungs fill with blood? He says, my dad's going to find out about this. He's going to get all of you. I love that verse in the Bible when Jesus says that. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He resisted revenge. He resisted bitterness. While hanging, dying, suffocating on the cross as an innocent man, he resisted that urge. I think we can do the same. I think what we do when we've been wronged matters. And I think why we do it matters. Because again, we don't show restraint in relationships to impress others or, yeah, I'm going to be the bigger person. Hmm. No, that's just pride getting in the way of what could be a great thing. We don't create distance out of spite, but to heal ourselves and maybe that relationship. We don't resist bitterness or revenge to avoid regret, but because it's the right, healthy, productive thing to do. It's not easy, as I've said many times, and I'm sure you know that. But it is our goal, it should be our focus and our aim to be God-honoring and people-loving in all we do, even when you've been wrong.